Well, folks, we're going to continue today as we were last week looking a little bit at, at our government and politics and where we are right now. You know, you, you may not have known, hard to believe, that the first Bible printed in America, would you, in English, would you believe who commissioned that? The Congress, those criminals. The Congress printing a Bible. And do you know why they did it? Gets even worse than them doing that. They did it to educate children in school. Oh, the horrors of it. That was our Congress in 1782. And no real surprise, as a matter of fact, you may have heard before, when you look at the 59 or 56 original signers of the Declaration of Independence, 29 of them had a seminary education. 29 of them were, were trained in ministry. Folks, we've been sold a bill of goods that says there needs to be an antagonism between the, the church and the state. And our founding fathers saw that and, and, and they designed something that was meant to limit and to control the church. Boy, you look back there and it's pretty clear that not only did our founding fathers have a deep religious faith... Folks, they didn't actually call it a deep religious faith. They called it a deep Christian faith. Now, when you hear those kinds of things and a couple of those things, like I just said, there are hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of facts and stories and illustrations about the depth of Christianity in our founding fathers. Usually, if today somebody acknowledges that, they do it begrudgingly. And they'll want to run right away to the irreligiousness of certain key founding fathers, guys like uh, Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin. And I'm not here today to, to prove or disprove whether they were religious or irreligious, but that was certainly thought of them in that way. Well, let's go with that for a moment. Let's think about the irreligiousness of Thomas Jefferson. Did you know that when he was the head of the Senate, before he was president, that he authorized the meeting of a church in the U.S. Capitol. That church would go on to become the first mega church. Didn't you think that was kind of a modern day term? Mega church, church that runs over 2,000. There's only like 150, 200 of them in the United States today. I thought that was just something that started in the 80s and beyond. No, the, the first mega church met in the United States Capitol on the signing of Thomas Jefferson. And as if that wasn't enough, he then set the, militor, the, uh, the Marine Corps band over to provide music for their worship services, probably at the expense of federal dollars. What a criminal. Did you know that as president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, remember, he's the example of the irreligious one. As president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson used federal funds to evangelize. That's right, I said evangelize. That means share the gospel with the Indians. And this is the guy who wrote the Constitution the Constitution that would lead people to believe today that our, our government's job is to limit and to control the church. Unfortunately, these kinds of things that I'm sharing are, are little more than fun facts because history's been rewritten. And the government does see its role now as to limit and to control and to, to stop the church if you were here last week, you heard me say, I don't actually blame that on a particular president or, or Congress. I blame that on the church. I blame that on the church. When I say church, I'm talking about capital C, the church across America. 
Because as this nation continued to unfold and the decades became centuries, the church, over half the church in America, stopped believing that the Bible was actually the Word of God. Most in America, most churches in America do not preach, do not share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one would have to fear that, that many believers of all churches, when we leave here, when we leave our places of worship, we go out into the world and we don't vote for Christ with our daily living. We're out there looking for answers in the world just like everybody else. And folks, if we're not voting for Christ in our daily living, then what kind of government do we think we're going to end up with? And so that leads us to where we are today, where we're going to vote for a government that is largely antagonistic to the church. How do we do that? How do we vote on November 6, 2012? I would like to suggest we start with our party affiliation. Either red or blue, right? No, purple. Say purple? I didn't think there was a purple one. I've heard of red states and blue states. What's? Oh, I get it. Red and blue mixes and makes purple. The pastor's walking the line, walking the fence. No, purple, folks. Remember, our party affiliation is royalty. We have a king. May I, may I remind you what it says in Philippians 3.20? We are present right now. Not one day going to be after a funeral. We are at present citizens of heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that Savior returns, there is going to be a name written on His robe and on His thigh. It's a governmental name. It is a governmental designation. It is a governmental position of leadership. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. Jesus is my government. And He is the government of all governments. Which means that you and I are loyal to one political leader. We are loyal to one government, and that is Jesus. We have to represent Him. We have to be loyal to Him in our daily living. And our daily living includes November 6th, doesn't it? When we go into the voting booth, we go in there to vote for His agenda. We go in there to vote for His platform. We go in there to express our loyalty to Him and to Him alone. Now think about what that means. When I go to vote, I'm not loyal to my parents' party affiliation. When I go in there to vote, I'm not loyal to my skin color. I'm not loyal to my tax bracket. I'm not loyal to my personal beliefs. I am loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go in there to vote for His agenda and His platform for the United States and for this world and for human history, we go in there to vote in, in concert with the way He governs. And, and when we look at in the Bible what God has given us, we see four kinds of government. God has given us four kinds. I'm not talking about fascist or democratic or republic. I'm talking about four other ways of governing that the Scripture gives us. The first form of government is self-government. Probably the most important. As a matter of fact, when this government works, it makes it easy on the others. Self-government. When we govern ourselves... And we govern ourselves according to God's Word. And only God's Word. We don't take our cues from the media or TV or friends or even family in some cases. Our cues come from God's Word. 
God's word tells us what is right and what is wrong. The Bible tells us that, that the evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is living in me, the evidence of that is self-governance, self-control. So, so the first form of government that God gives us is self-government. God creates the human being, gives that human being his purpose, gives them the laws and the principles by which he is to guide and govern himself in this world. Second form of government that God gives us is family government. Just like the human, it is God, not, not society, not sociology. God created the family. And when God created the family, He gave the family its purpose. He gave the family the laws and principles by which it runs. He gave the family a, a hierarchy. It is God's definition of the family. And the family is the building block of society. The most important element of society on this planet. So it's very important that we understand what God said about it. Folks, I believe something very unique, very important happened in human history. In American history in August of 2012 at the Democratic National Convention. When they elected that their party platform would be to promote homosexual marriage. Folks, I want you to understand something as I talk about this. I'm not saying that the Democratic Convention is ungodly and the Republican Convention is godly. That the Democrats don't represent Christianity and the Republicans do. Because that's not the truth. There are sinners on both sides of the aisle. There are ungodly on both sides of the aisle. There are ungodly principles on both sides of the aisle. And there has been those on both sides of the aisle and as a party that have rejected biblical principles. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about a particular act of what was done or what was not done. I'm talking about a party that has now said our DNA, our reason for existence, that's what a platform is. A platform is this is why we exist. This is what we want to do with government. We want to call good what God calls sin. We want to reject and we want to fight God's biblical definition of marriage. We have to be concerned about that. That's not a statement about an individual Democratic candidate. One would have to ask themselves, why would that candidate want to be a party of something that defies God's definition? Something else I thought was interesting, I, I did not know this, the Democratic National Convention just chose in August to make abortion a part of their party platform. The, the reason I say I was surprised by it, I thought it would have already been. I mean, Norman, there's, there's been Republicans and Democrats that have, have voted for and promoted and protected abortion rights. That's, that's been going on for decades. But normally when you think of the party that most does that, you would think of the Democratic Party that is mostly promoting and protecting that. So I'm just surprised after all these decades that it was just this August that they elected to make that officially what we're about. This is a part of our party platform. Now, folks, those are two things that, in my opinion, we have to be very concerned about when such a significant part of our government has said, we are going to fight biblical direction. We're going to fight what God has said. We're going to stand for the, the opposite of that. Because family government is so key to the health and the well-being of a society. 
So God, the Bible, has given us self-government. It's given us family government. And of course, third kind would be church government. Just like an individual, just like a family, it is God that created the church. This wasn't an idea of man. It is God that instituted the church, designed it, gave it a hierarchy, gave it its laws and its principles, gave it its purpose. And the church is a part of the governance of mankind. And then the fourth kind, and and the kind we're thinking about this day, is civil government. Romans 13 gives us a very clear description of why God created the the laws and principles that are governed, the purpose behind civil government. Very simple, is to promote what is good and to restrain what is evil. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the role of civil government is to pick up the ball when the other three forms of government fail, right? Right? I mean, if my self-government cannot keep me from killing you, then it is the civil government's job to step in and deal with my failure of civil government. If my self-government cannot keep me from stealing from you, then the civil government steps in and deals with my lack of self-government. So the, the civil government works in concert with the other three governments. It does not supersede In most nations, in most governments, the government does supersede the people and the other forms of government. The United States, those founding fathers gave us a very rare and unique form where the government was never meant to supersede us. It was never meant to be over us. But remember, it's that whole government for the people and by the people. So we have these four forms of government that God and the Bible give us. Now, when I understand that I have a king... When I understand the four governments in which that king has filled his kingdom, I think there's at least two priorities, two key priorities as as you and I walk into the voting booth. Uh, first priority is kind of obvious. I go into that f- voting booth as a, as a messenger, as a servant, as a representative of King Jesus. I'm asking myself the question, how can I vote what am I dealing with here in propositions and laws and candidates? How can I vote in a way that best advances the kingdom of God? And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're simply talking about God's rule and God's reign on this earth. How can I vote? Now, sometimes you might look at a position. We might be voting on dog catcher or something like that. And maybe wondering, well, how does this position affect that? You know what? You may decide, I can't tell how this position or how this person affects the kingdom of God. But that has to be our priority. That has to be the question that we're asking when I look at this person, when I look at this candidate, this position, this proposition. When I vote for that, what impact can that potentially have on the advancement of God's kingdom? Because that's my number one priority on this planet. That's my number one priority in this day. That's my number one priority in this voting booth. How can God's kingdom advance? Second priority, since we're normally voting on civil government, how do I vote for a candidate that is going to lead the civil government to best work in concert with the other forms of government? When I look at this candidate, when I look at he or she's life, how they've lived their own life, when I look at forms of leadership or governance this candidate has already shown, are, are they going to reward the individual that is self-governing? Are, are they going to reward the individual that is productive? Are they going to deal with individuals that are doing wrong? Are they going to work in concert with self-government? Are they going to protect and support the family? 
the, the key building block of the American society, of any society. Are, are they going to be in support of that, protect that? Are they going to make it more challenging to be a family? Are, are they going to work in concert with the church? You know, I said last week, folks, I'm not looking for a government. I'm not looking for a government to preach Jesus Christ. I'm actually not looking for a government to hand out Bibles. I am looking for them to get out of the way so that you and I can, right? I don't need them to do that. I don't even need, I don't even need a born-again Christian to vote on. Obviously, that'd be my preference. And there may be cases where somebody claims to be a born-again Christian and isn't even the best candidate. The Bible does not say only born-again Christians can serve in a civil government position. It doesn't say anything like that. But I still have to look at that candidate's life and see what their understanding of right and wrong is and how they're going to live out that right and wrong so that when they step into that civil government, will they lead our civil government to understand what is right, what is wrong? How are they going to communicate that to this community? How are they going to communicate that to the state and to the nation so that we are a people who protect and promote and advance what is right and what is good and who punish and restrain what is wrong? Folks, when we go into the booth on November 6th, we're there to represent Jesus Christ. We have to do that. That can be the only thing that guides us. And I recognize that you may feel, I may feel at times that, well, I, I don't even see how this vote's going to impact that. I can't even tell that, that, that my vote makes a difference. Oh, but we, but we must go. We must do that. You say, Why? Because Romans 13.1 says, submit to your governing authorities. And folks, our authorities have called you and me to vote. Can we be disobedient before a watching world? The United States Constitution calls you, calls me to vote. Our president, President Barack Obama, I've heard several times, has called us to vote. Our governor, Governor McDonald, has called us to vote. I mean, all of our leaders are calling on us to vote. We're an obedient people. We serve the government. We submit to the government. They've called us to vote. We must vote in order to obey the Lord. You know, I think we should vote too to, to honor our military, shouldn't we? Now, we're, we're a military honoring church. We, I mean, aren't we? Come on. I mean, really, we are. I mean, we like our patriotic holidays. We like our patriotic songs. We like to have our military stand and, and we like to clap for them. And man, yes, thank God for our military. Let me ask you a question. Will you honor him November 6th? Let's kind of imagine a worst case scenario November 6th. Let's just imagine it's 45 degrees and pouring down rain from 7 to 7. Boy, that gets you excited about getting out in the middle of that, doesn't it? And it's a presidential election. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million voters. So, you know, it's cold. It's raining. There's a long line. This is going to take an hour to give this vote. And it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, but hadn't there been some U.S. military that have given one year to also go live in some pretty uncomfortable conditions so that you and I would have freedoms and have rights, that those freedoms and rights are protected in advance? Since they gave a year away from family and, and friends and church and work, since they gave one year away, can you and I give one hour and one vote? And of course, some of those folks, when they came home, they came home minus a limb. They lost an arm. They lost a leg. Since they gave one limb, can you and I give one hour 
and give one vote. They gave that limb so that you and I would have this incredible freedom, privilege, responsibility of electing and choosing our leaders and our laws. Of course, some of those military paid the highest price, didn't they? They gave one life. They gave a life so that you and I could take one hour and cast one vote. I don't know about y'all, but even without the Bible, I don't think I can do any less than that one vote. I can't imagine that it's going to be more uncomfortable for me to stand in line. I think I vote over at Ironbridge Baptist Church. I can't imagine that it's going to be any more uncomfortable for me to stand in line for however long, no matter what the weather was, than it was for that, that young man, that young woman to be in Afghanistan the last year. I can do no less than cast a vote. And when I cast that vote, I can only cast it for one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So folks, when we go on November 6th, and we will go, we go to represent Him. We go prayerfully. And as God watches the United States, and I believe I'm in a room that believes we need God's hand upon what we're doing. We need God's blessing and we need God's protection. So as he sees a hundred million or more of us move to elect and, and to vote on that day, would he also look down on this nation and see a people praying? Man, let's be in prayer. Let's be prayerful as we go in there. Those two days, November 5th and 6th, we, we only vote on one day. I'm not making an announcement about the government making it two days. We vote Tuesday, November 6th, but Monday and Tuesday, November 5th and 6th, uh, this room will be open from 9 to 4 that day. We'll, have, we'll, have, uh, we'll probably set them up here, maybe some out there. We'll have prayer guides for how to pray on that day. And I know most of the schools are out, or I believe all the schools are out on those two days. What an opportunity that as you vote, you also come in here alone with family, with friends, and you just spend 5, 10, 15 minutes. Something, isn't it pretty a significant thing that's happening when we elect a new government at, at, at our federal, our state, and local levels? I don't know about y'all. I want God to see this nation depending upon Him for that process. Boy, I pray He sees our church depending upon Him for that process. And as we go into that booth, may we not only go in there to represent Him, may we not only go in there prayerful, but may we go in there educated understanding as much as we can. I, honestly, sometimes I feel like I don't know that I have a good grasp on this, this person or, or this proposition. But you know what? You and I have to do the best we can to get as educated as we can about what this person represents and what they're going to do with this office or what this proposition represents and, and what it will mean. We need to be educated about that. There's a variety of things on there. Our, our church is making available. We have a, a voter's guide. This is not a new thing. They're, they're very common. The 2012 Virginia Voter Guide. It only has two things in here. There'll be other things. Uh, it has the President and the Virginia Senate. And it lists a, a series of things of, of how these candidates would vote on that. And then out beside each one it says it supports or opposes. And there'll be a little number by that. I would encourage you not to trust this. That little number represents a footnote, and those footnotes are on the back. Go read the footnote. Read what this candidate said or has done, and understand, are, is, this, is this thing interpreting it correctly? Are, are they right in what they're saying? Understand what these candidates are going to do on these various positions. 
This thing does not communicate a candidate to elect. It is solely an educational piece that helps you understand what each candidate represents. But we have to be knowledgeable. We are wise stewards. We're good managers of what God gives us, right? He gave us this country. He gave us this government. So let us represent him. Let us be prayerful and let us be as smart as we can be about what we're doing because we go in there to stand for Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and in the, in the coming weeks, Lord, we're going to be electing a new government. It's such a unique, still after 230 plus years, such a unique human experience that we peacefully, we peacefully elect leadership and there is a transition of leadership. Election after election after election that goes on. And Lord, I pray that that as we come towards November 6th, that our, our nation would be smart. I ask for your blessing and your guidance on our, on our media, on our resources for information. I ask God that you would bless and guide the candidates to clearly communicate who they are and what they represent so that when we go into that booth, we're not confused and we're not unclear, but we know exactly what they're going to do and exactly what they stand for. And with that knowledge, God, and dependence upon you, may we clearly cast a vote that represents the advancement of your kingdom in this world. God, we need you. This nation needs you. We need your principles. We need your character. We need your blessing and your guidance. And God, we are a, we are a sinful people. God, we are, we are greedy. We are violent. We, we are sexually immoral. We are grossly self-interested and self-focused. God, we have become more and more a nation that has cast off the acknowledgement and the, and the following of you. We ask that you'd forgive our sin. God, I pray your grace and kindness on us as, as this nation elects new leaders at, at all levels. I pray that there would be godly men and godly women that would come into these positions and that God that are guided by biblical understanding of right and wrong and would lead and make decisions in concordance with that. Oh God, we need your help in this nation and we depend upon you for it. Hear our prayers. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.